The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We are in the second week of campaign filing season. It has been a lot. I thought week one was something. Now, let's be clear with listeners. We are starting this recording at 322 on Thursday, December 14th. We have less than 24 hours left in filing. Uh, Sky's got her computer open. We're trying to pay attention to Twitter. We're trying to pay attention to any other alerts we may get. Uh, So pay attention to us on Twitter. Tomorrow we'll have some other updates, but we wanted to get this thing recorded. Lots of news to cover. Let's get after it. So first, just to rewind, Last week, when Representative Patrick McHenry said he was not running, there was a lot of speculation about who was going to run in his district. And some names that we heard were Representative Jason Sane, Senator Vicki Sawyer, Representative Gray Mills. And this week, we have seen that parse out a bit. Representative Gray Mills has stepped up. He says he's going to run for that nomination in the 10th district. Pat Harrigan, you may recall, we talked about it last week. He was in the 14th. He's coming over to the 10th. So it looks like Gray Mills, Pat Harrigan are the top guys in that race. And by the way, we're talking all Republican here. Also, it was rumored last week that maybe John Bradford would get into the 10th district. He did a head fake this week. Uh, He was supposed to run for treasure. He had been running for treasure. Very open about that. Time to file. He went ahead and filed for the 8th District. Again, Republicans. He's facing Mark Harris, the disgraced congressional candidate from 2018. The Patrick McHenry News continues to give ripple effects throughout NC polls, especially on the Republican side. After last week and that poll about Sam Page and Senator Berger, there was quite a lot of speculation about what was going to happen there. On Wednesday night, Lucille Sherman dropped a story on Axios giving the background of what was going on, where this was coming from, and it got a lot of eyes on it. And then you saw that Dylan Watts had tweeted that Berger's campaign was looking at filing some ethics complaints. And now here we are on Thursday, Sam Page is running for lieutenant governor. He filed earlier today. And the rumor was last week, Friday, that people thought Sam Page was going to file for that Senate race last week. And then they said, oh, it's going to be Monday. The monster matchup folks were bracing for in Rockingham County isn't going to happen. There are five open Council of State seats, which is quite a lot for Council of State statewide races. Last week, Senator Natasha Marcus announced she wasn't going to run. I think that was expected. She then announced this week she was going to run 
for insurance commissioner. And the other Democrat who was in that race already had put out a statement saying he was going to back out on Tuesday, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then he decided, actually, I'm not going to do that. So he said he was going to back out, but now he's back in. Mm -hmm. So that should be an interesting primary. It hasn't been declared yet, but the word around Raleigh is that Senator Mary Wills Bodie, who's been on the podcast twice, uh, she's a Democrat. She is not running for re-election in her Senate district. She represents the 18th district, which is primarily Granville County, a little bit of Wake. She is not going to run for re-election. By the way, there's a toss-up Senate race. And uh, the word is, and it'll be confirmed soon, is that she is running for state treasurer. Now, there's already Wesley Harris, the representative in the House, uh, again, a Democrat. He has already declared for that seat. He's been running for the last, I think, year or so. Uh, So there's a primary there for treasurer. On the Republican side for treasurer, uh, we're hearing that A.J. Dowd, uh, he's been a candidate in the past, Republican, very active in the party. He is a declared candidate for treasurer on that side. Also, just a side note about all of these primaries, it has already gotten a little testy on both sides of the aisle, and we are months out from the primary. Yeah. For the attorney general's race on the Democratic side, Durham DA Santana DeBerry released a monster ad. It was about a three-minute ad, produced by Frank Eaton, by the way. And boy, she took the gloves off with Jeff Jackson. We also had some snipping on Twitter. Former Senator Ben Clark, who's running for lieutenant governor, not only did he take a shot at uh, Senator Natasha Marcus, he also took a shot at his opponent, Senator Rachel Hunt, pretty much indicating that she is the front runner or presumed front runner because she is the daughter of former governor Jim Hunt. Additionally, again, today's Thursday, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson officially filed for governor today. And in the interview with the reporter right after he filed, he said he was not willing to have a primary debate with his opponents. Uh, He's also freshly back from Florida. Former President Donald Trump hosted a fundraiser for him down at Mar-a-Lago, a very rare fundraiser, uh, President Trump said. He usually doesn't get into state races, but not only did he raise money for the lieutenant governor in his bid for governor in that GOP nomination, but uh, gave him uh, an introduction at the event. At that Mar-a-Lago event on Tuesday, former President Trump seemingly endorsed Bo Hines in the 6th District, saying, you know, he's going to be your next congressman from North Carolina. And then 24 hours later, endorses Addison McDowell, who is a lobbyist for Blue Cross Blue Shield, who hadn't even announced that he was running yet. But Trump put out this statement, and then you saw Addison put out his statement. And Addison, he has a brother who also lobbies at the General Assembly, Chess McDowell. They're very close to the Trump family. There's photos of them out 
hunting and hanging out and doing things. And the other subplot to this is poor Mark Walker. That guy just can't get an endorsement by President Trump, even though he keeps trying so desperately hard. So big news in the 6th District, and that is going to be a primary to watch. In that race, there are six Republican candidates. In a lot of these races, there are quite a few people in the primary. So it's going to make the primary day really interesting. We had a press announcement today about someone who is serving in Congress announcing he is not running for re-election, but he's got some news for 2026. Representative Wiley Nickel, who represents the 13th district, that was that really close race last time between him and Bo Hines, he announced he was not going to be running, but he was going to run for the U.S. Senate in 2026. So if you were thinking we were talking about 2024, no, we're already on to 2026 in some races. (laughs) But in that 13th district, 10 Republicans have filed for that seat. And I want to just do an add-on to the Senator Bodie and the news that she may be running for treasurer. We think she is running for treasurer. You're probably wondering about who would run to defend that seat for the Democrats in Senate District 18. Well, it's none other than Representative Terrence Everett, who just this week, two days ago, announced that he was not seeking re-election to his House seat. He's a Democrat, mainly in that Wake Forest area. He said he wanted to spend more time with his family. So I guess 48 hours, he got that done, and he's back on the campaign trail and will be running for the Senate in Senator Bodie's place. I'm sure tomorrow there will be plenty more news since it's the last day of filing, and we'll cover all of that next week. And there are plenty of rumors going around about who's running for what. And there are some people that haven't filed. I'll note that Brian Anderson on Twitter has a really nice list of people who've announced that they're going to do something but hadn't filed yet. And he also has a spreadsheet of who's running for what. So that's a really great resource if you're looking. Yeah, Dr. Chris Cooper, Dr. Michael Bitzer also have some really good online resources. They are tracking the filings every day. Before we wrap it up, anything you see? Nothing. All right. Well, off to the interview. Continuing in our media series this week, we sat down with Billy Ball from Cardinal and Pine to hear about his publication and his life story. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Billy Ball Senior Editor at Cardinal and Pine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So what does Senior Editor at Cardinal and Pine mean? Like, what is your day-to-day, what is your job? Like most people who work in some sort of management position in journalism, it usually means that you wear about 10 hats. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you start in journalism doing one thing. Like most of us, I started, like most junior reporters writing obits and and all the the police blotters and the the commission meeting stories. And then eventually what you 
neglect to realize as you become an editor is that you're really going to do about 45 jobs by the time that you, mm-hmm. you get up there. So for me, it means I, I overlook um, our community reporting because we, we don't just work on politics at Cardinal and Pine. That's kind of our bread and butter, and that's where we started. But we also have a, a abiding interest in the culture of North Carolina, which I think is super interesting. I wrote about Andy Griffith a few weeks ago. Like, that's like a good example. It's like, you know, we don't want it to just be about straight down the road what's happening at the legislature. Mm-hmm. And so so I oversee that sort of big umbrella coverage at Cardinal and Pine. I write a lot about politics as well and education. I do some reporting. I, and I also run a uh, newsletter that we, uh, a free newsletter that we send out several times a week and, and really... Uh, just make sure that all the trains are running on time if I can. Cardinal and Pine started in 2020, is that correct? That is true. And what gap were you trying to fill or like what was the impetus for Cardinal and Pine? It's interesting. When we launched in 2020, it was about a week before our first COVID case in North Carolina. Okay. I don't know if y'all remember back to like when we started getting our first cases, I was somehow, even as somebody in news, ignorant to how big that was going to be. Yeah. We all, it, yeah. just underestimated. It's like, oh, it's going to be a problem for a few weeks, right? No. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, I was leaving Policy Watch. It was like my last day in an office with people. Okay. Was, was at Policy Watch, and I assumed I'd be in an office with people again <laughs> at some point soon. It took months and months and months. But I think that the COVID story and the pandemic, its timing really highlighted to me why we existed. Because we exist for a few reasons. One is that as a, as a native of rural North Carolina, I really wanted to see a much bigger spotlight on the issues in rural North Carolina, because that's most of North Carolina. Yeah. You know, we like to think of ourselves as having big cities. You're cool, Raleigh. You're cool, Charlotte. You're cool, all the cities. But 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 most of this state is rural. So so that was a big part for me in Cardinal Pine. But also, um, it was trying to combat some of the misinformation that we saw on on social media and especially places that didn't have local news outlets. That sort of stuff really flourished. And once the pandemic started, I mean, you couldn't have had a better example of mm-hmm. how it flourished. The type of stuff that we were seeing, I should say I, we didn't have a staff yet. It was just me. <laughs> it's just me in a house with my kids because <laughs> they weren't in school. But the types of stuff that were, were coming out, that Cardinal Pine, it, it became really clear. Oh, we, got, we have to make content that succeeds, can flourish on social media and passes along good information. So we are open, as I've stated on many uh, outlets before, we're open about being left-leaning, but there is no lean to me when it comes to basic, basic facts, because we are not a for-profit news operation. Hmm. I don't know how to make profit (laughs) in news. (laughs) Don't come to me for those answers. I think most journalists don't know how to make profit. I don't think the NNO's figured it out either. (laughs) No, I think a lot of news operations have been nonprofits for years and they just don't want to say it out loud (laughs) because our motivation is not profit. It's not making money. We can invest time. Our, our, our investment is information. To us, we we can make different choices about how we're going to spend our resources and where we're going to go and what we're going to write about. So I see your content on social media, mainly your posts, Twitter. How does one officially access Cardinal and Pine beyond social media? So there are a 
few different ways. As I mentioned before, I have a newsletter, an award-winning newsletter. We've right. won a few awards at the Press Association for this. Uh, it is free. You can sign up on our website, cardinalpine.com. What I try to work on in that newsletter is condensing everything that's happening in a way that is accessible. I try to write it like I am writing for the people in in my family because I don't come from a family that loves or cares about politics that much. well they like to argue about it but I don't think that they you know tap into it all the time or or think about it like someone who's sitting in the legislature all the time thinks right. about it I try to write things in an accessible way in an empathetic way especially again with that emphasis on rural issues it's a free sign up you are never going to pay for anything mm -hmm. at Cardinal Pine a big thing that our founder Tara McGowan believes in and there's a lot of research behind this as, as well that those information gaps that we see out there in those local news areas they can be really fed by paywalls I see the journalists out there the, the for-profit companies and who are who are saying you know you know sign up for our, our paper and I, I fully believe in that I subscribe to papers as well but I also understand some people can't on community content, um, like sort of cultural sort of stuff, we'll sometimes put a wall up to say, sign up for our newsletter. But we'll never ask for money. I think you said earlier that you've been in North Carolina essentially your entire life. Tell us, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Elizabeth City, which is out in northeastern North Carolina. I was uh, like most of the people who live in that area. I was from a military family. So my father was in the Coast Guard. Coast Guard never gets the proper amount of shout outs. Of the Coast Guard. Uh, and, and that's one of the largest Coast Guard bases in America is out there in oh. Elizabeth City. It's the air base they dispatch up and down the coast. And so my dad was a master chief in the Coast Guard. And it had a um, big impact on him. It had a big impact on our family. I have a lot of love for the military out there. Spent most of my life in Elizabeth City. Somehow we managed to only get transferred because a lot of military families get bounced all over the place. We managed to only get transferred for a couple of years up to Maine, which was cool. Yeah. I, don't, I don't need that much snow <laughs> in my life. That, that was cool. It was beautiful. beautiful. Um, then we got transferred back to Elizabeth City. It was a big joke at his retirement party. How did you just stay here? <laughs> we mostly stayed down here. My mother worked in uh, the local public school in the cafeteria, and uh, I got to see her every day. Good sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not too good. <laughs> I enjoyed living in Eastern North Carolina. I was pretty much, when I got out of high school, like most people, I was very eager to get out of there and, and, and go see the rest of the world. And I was one of those journalism nerds from the start. Like I was into journalism in high school and total dork, not even <laughs> cool about it. Because it wasn't a cool thing to do in your high school. We're going to... We're going to do the student newspaper. Everybody's like, what? <laughs> and you're like, we've got this great story about Chicken Nugget Day. I literally wrote about Chicken Nuggets in my high school paper because it was just pandemonium anytime they served Chicken Nuggets. Wow. That was, you know, big deal. Just <laughs> a big deal. So ended up studying in Chapel Hill. It was just very fortunate that we had one of the finest journalism schools in the country here. Yeah. So it's not like I had to go anywhere else. I, my eyes were totally on journalism. It was like, oh, that was my first choice anyway. I wanted to go to Chapel Hill. I grew up a Carolina fan, and, and so it just sort of fell into place. I was very fortunate in that regard and um, sort of hung around North Carolina after that and went into local papers and a few of the papers, uh, Sanford Herald. They call it the Herald down in <laughs> Lee County. <laughs> um, uh, worked in Monroe at the Inquirer Journal. Um, 
eventually at the Indy and Durham. And so I've kind of hopped around a little bit, but, uh, you know, I think that my, my heart is still out in Eastern North Carolina, because I think that places like that are still the most neglected areas, not just journalism wise, they're neglected in, in politics, they're neglected in policy at the state and federal level. So there's a narrative out there in politics. I've heard it on both sides, Democrats and Republicans. Democrats are like, progressives have really got to get out of these urban bubbles and go talk to rural North Carolinians. And then on the Republican side, when there's criticisms that are pointed out, maybe by the media or the progressive side, they go, you guys are just city folks. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know where your food comes from. Sounds like you see that being from Eastern North Carolina. It sounds like you came from modest means. Mm. Your mother worked in the school cafeteria. Mm-hmm. You got a comment. I think you, you hit the nail on the head with a lot of the tension that exists in our politics beyond North Carolina is urban versus rural sort of divide. And I, I don't think that there's much of a divide in terms of what people actually want, which is to send their kids to school and have them get educated and succeed down the line to drink water that they aren't afraid is giving them kidney failure and to believe that they can trust the people who are making the policies for them. Because I think what people, most people unlike us aren't like sitting around fascinated by or interested in politics. What they want is a government that they can trust to be functioning silently off somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that isn't jumping into their lives and messing things up. That's one of the things I try to be the most thoughtful about at Cardinal and Pine is not thinking about this like a policy insider. If my lead is virtually the same as the politics reporter who spends all their time at the legislature, then I think I blew it. Mm-hmm. I messed that story up. Look at some place like Politico, you know, good writers, good reporting. They get scoops all the time. But I think when you read it, it it's just for insiders. Right. I'm not saying when you're talking to a rural audience, you're going to dumb it down. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying you need to open it up. Aside from the political lens that you look through, how do you decide what sort of cultural North Carolina story to write? There's no um, science behind it. Okay. (laughs) It's, It's generally just... You know, what we're interested in, what do we think, you know, what do I want to read about as, as someone who's from North Carolina? I, I try to think outside of the box, too, and just shot a video about cicadas because it, I think every year you can, you can figure out that people are, are like, why is it so loud this year? Or why is it not that loud? And you're just curious about it. It's something you, I try to think about things that are kind of omnipresent for us as North Carolinians, but we're, we don't actually know all the answers about it. And and we're curious and, and people are super curious. And also I think people, especially Southerners are self-conscious about our culture for a lot of reasons because there's negative associated with our culture. There's positive and a lot of negative mm-hmm. and, but we have pride. And at the same time, we're, we, we want to talk about the things that, that we associate with here. I we, I think I, I get a little bit annoyed sometimes. We, we have certainly done our barbecue articles, but like <laughs> places from outside of North Carolina, they're like, oh, let's do a culture story about North Carolina. It's barbecue. That's it. Yeah. yeah. We've got other things. We do. We do. <laughs> we do have other things. I did a story recently about the history of Grandfather Mountain. It just, you know, again, there wasn't any science behind that choice. When I discovered that some guy literally inherited Grandfather Mountain years and years ago. I was like, what? Yeah. 
That's wild to me. Does anybody else think that's interesting? That's a, <laughs> yeah. that's a big park and some guy owned it. You know, just going into that, those sorts of stories that I think are curious and interesting. And hopefully, I hope people find them interesting too. Uh, you also have this, seems to have an equal passion for politics. Can you talk a little bit about the politics of Billy Ball here? Sure. I grew up in a very conservative family and... I, you know, probably would have considered myself a quote unquote conservative for, you know, up until a certain point in my life. And, and they uh, got you at Chapel Hill. didn't they? <laughs> That's what my parents said. <laughs> my dad used to say, oh, they brainwashed you. In Chapel Hill. <laughs> I, gotta, I don't know, man. Uh, you know, so the um, so I think that uh, politics is not something that I grew up tracking a lot. It was not my main focus, but. I was interested in issues. And so politics to me is, the, of course, the vehicle for change on issues. And, you know, I did not come up in advocacy circles. I came up in, uh, came up in journalism circles. But I think that, you know, when you're writing opinion in journalism, which I have done for years, I did it at Policy Watch, your job, your goal is to convince people. You're not just writing it to have some pretty words, hopefully, and bounce them out and and hear yourself talk so you know you you hopefully people hear you and they feel enlightened or interested or um or willing to talk to you about it so you know i i am super interested in education always have been as i mentioned before growing up in eastern north carolina you think about education i heard it early on oh you're going to a low performing school that was the the name they still say that Mm-hmm. Still say you go to a low performance school. You go to an F school. Um, I hate that, by the way. I mean, that's what I, I heard all of high school. It's, it's what you hear when you're filling out your college application. And it's when you, you know, you're coming from a low performing school. What does that mean? And you go, I don't think of myself as low performing or I don't think of my friends as low performing. But, you know, what it usually means is low funded. <laughs> or it also means poverty, too, yeah. in that community. Mm-hmm. So I had, we had this debate in our neighborhood this past weekend, a couple, and they were just saying, look, one of the reasons we bought here is because the schools are so great. And my reaction to them was... They're no greater than any other school. We just have a bunch of upper middle class kids who go to that school. There's no better predictor of educational, uh, you know, high marks, of high marks in education than the money in a community. Right. And yeah, like you said, it's not like kids in Raleigh or in Charlotte or in other places with a little more money have smarter kids. They didn't just pop out smarter kids. I'm 41 years old. The issues that I talk about when I talk about the Leandro schools case, when I talk about underfunding in Eastern North Carolina, they preceded me as a kid in the nineties. I went to school, graduated, went to college, and then and ended up meeting all these people from bigger school systems who were talking about the classes they took in high school. And I was like, that didn't exist <laughs> right. where I'm from. Right. It's not even an option. So right. Uh, and, and, you know, that was one of the first questions that popped into my head when I heard that was like, how's that legal? Right. You had a different, like, educational experience. You had a whole different opportunity. And uh, and your low-performing school teachers got you to Chapel Hill. Yeah. I mean, I they, mean they are good teachers. They are high-performing teachers. They I, just are teaching in a low-income county community for the most part. There are amazing teachers who teach out there and not only do they teach in communities with more folks from low income families, but they teach in communities where they're literally getting less pay. 
Yeah. Um, they yeah. are not getting the local supplements. It's a huge difference right. in what a Wake County teacher gets versus a Bertie County, Pasquotank County teacher. They're amazing teachers who put, and there are amazing kids who come out of there. I was talking about this the other day. The new mayor of Durham is one of the Halifax County kids from, yeah. from out there yeah. near where I'm from. And so Leo you know, Williams, he's been on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. right. Yeah. I've seen magic in those communities. Mm-hmm. So you seem to have a love for North Carolina and I would just ask you like, what's the, your favorite story you've written? See, there's like, I think the best stories I've written versus the ones I most <laughs> enjoyed writing. Okay. Um, I think about the most important story. I think I feel like I've written was some years ago back at the Indy. And this is kind of a grim story, and I don't want to ruin your podcast audience. But, the, but you know, I got a, a phone call from a, a prison nurse who told me that, you know, hey, they just brought in this guy from another prison, and he was all beat up and dead on arrival. And we're, as the medical professionals here at this prison, we're like, what happened to this guy? And that sort of set me on a path of just asking a lot of questions about correctional facilities and and how these work. There have been stories that came out since then, but that was a, a story that I wrote. Um, I think he was coming from Alexander Correctional to Raleigh at the time. Michael Carr was his name, and uh, a man who had been left in solitary confinement, and he had a, a mental illness. I learned to my astonishment while reporting that story that the way that we handle mental illness in prisons, and still to this day in many prisons across this country, is to put them in solitary confinement. The idea being that it's for their own benefit to protect them from the rest of the inmates. The problem is, I think, is almost anybody you tell this story to, they start nodding. Nobody thinks that solitary confinement is good for someone's mental health. You can take someone without a mental illness and put them in solitary confinement, and they might come out with one. Mm -hmm. So putting somebody in there with a serious mental illness, and I mean, he died of, if I recall correctly, of dehydration which is astonishing in our care. So that story, I wrote about that story, and there were a lot of follow-ups after that too, asking what, how do we handle mental illness in prisons and how do we treat people? And there was a lot of change that came from that. I don't think, honestly, nearly enough. And we see stories like this all over the country. So I felt like, as a reporter, that was the best work I'd ever done. Not only because it was hard to write, but because I had to go and interview people who didn't trust me, you know, like... Mr. Carr's family, Mm -hmm. you know, they stood me up. They they didn't want to talk to me about this. Why would they trust me? Mm -hmm. And, and so I think stories like that are like, really, when I think of like good reporting, I'm like proud of that because you had to push through a lot of walls to do that. And I feel the same way about some of this recent reporting that I did out in Sampson County, which I'm not the first person to write about the water issues out there in Sampson County. Lisa Sorg at Newsline has done amazing work. The Health News, NC Health News has done great work there. And many of those Eastern North Carolina counties in the Cape Fear area with the with the PFAS and the issues in their water is just astonishing. I think we're finding out it's not just them. It's we have in Durham's water supply where I live. And, you know, I think that that's some of the journalism that I'm most proud of. In 2023... You wrote a story that had to be difficult for you, Billy. A story that's difficult for me to read. You wrote in the Atlantic Monthly about the death of your son, Jackson. It's been a year. We're in the holiday season. It's coming up on a year. You did a 
very moving podcast with our friend Tim Boyum over at Tying It Together. This must be a difficult time for you. I think that, you know, talking about Jackson, it's not in my nature to be quiet about something. Okay. <laughs> most journalists, okay. are, it's not in our nature to just be quiet about something. I know other people might, might say, why talk about something like that that's so awful or so hard? Um, and for me, it's helpful. And it's um, also, I think, you know, you're trying to find meaning in something that doesn't have meaning. Or, or if it has meaning, it's awful meaning. Yeah. <laughs> in what kind of world or universe you lose your six-year-old son suddenly and so healthy and special. And I dropped him off at school that morning and he was freaking out because he left his they all have laptops and he left his laptop at home and he was worried he was going to get in trouble and I was like your teacher's not going to be that mad I said look I'm going to go back home I'm going to drop you off here so you're not late for school I'm going to go back home get the computer and bring it back up he was just so worried (laughs) that he was going to get in trouble about it and he was just such a sweet he's so sensitive like Mm -hmm. he just you know and I was just starting to see who he was I mean I think we have a sense of a kid before six, but you start to really like see that person personality sort of blossom. So, and this was early January. So we're returning from the holiday break. Yeah. It was his first day back first to school back from the holidays. That was the first I dropped him off yeah. at school. And that's the last time I saw him alive. You know, I think with the holidays and I mentioned this in our newsletter at Cardinal and Pine, that the holidays are a trigger bomb. Just, Anybody who's lost somebody, and I finally understand that. I lost my father, and we're coming up, it was a December 15th, and he was very young. He was 52, so my mother lost her husband very young, and it was so close to Christmas, so the holidays for her were incredibly triggering and have been since then. I think I, I finally appreciate coming up on this stuff. We, we did Thanksgiving the other day, and it's like we had a sleepover with my daughters and their cousins, and my wife asked me when we got upstairs, like, she's like, it's just so messed up that he's not, he would love that sleepover. You know, Mm. I talk about Jackson because I also want, because I know there are people out there who are in this awful club with me who've lost children. And I think anybody, it's not just children, but profound loss, people who've experienced profound loss. And I I talked about it because I, I want them to hear from me from everyone to be feel connected to the world. And there were, there were other reasons too. I wanted to talk about, can we do something out of this? Uh, we started a fund for his school and, uh, in Jackson's name, cause he loved to draw and make music. He loved, I mentioned this on Tim Boyum show. He loved like old school hip hop, like the beastie boys and like, yeah. and like tribe called quest and stuff. I don't even know that he would have identified the artists each time, but he knew the sound uh-huh. and he was like, that's awesome. And the rest <laughs> of what you guys are listening to is trash. <laughs> I was like, no, there's other stuff too, man. But he just loved that old school hip hop sound and he loved to draw and he was quite good at it. And I had a soft spot for him because we were, we were both lefties and I enjoyed watching him create. And so, you know, we, we started up a fund to raise money for the arts program at his school. And last time I checked, it was like $46,000 people oh, donated that's great. all over the place. I don't even know where it was coming from. And uh, they're deciding what they're going to do at the school for him now. Yeah. You know, 
you know, that was one reason I, I talked about it. And the other reason was that people were so, uh, people had a bizarre, bizarre to me reaction, um, on the internet when they found out that I had advocated for COVID vaccines and, and I'm not the only journalist they've done this to, or, or not the only person who's in some sort of public space who spoke about vaccines who had this experience, but people on the internet just got really nasty and, <laughs> and like, not just, they were sending me emails and all sorts of awful stuff about how I killed my son. I wanted to speak about it because I felt like I was coming from a place where I knew that was bogus and I mean, it's still sick to hear, mm -hmm. but I felt fortunate that I knew that that was a bogus thing to say to me. And if there were people out there because there are children die every day, it's awful. And for whatever reasons, and I just wanted to make sure that if there were parents out there who were experiencing something like this, they knew they weren't alone and not to treat themselves poorly, to be kind to themselves because yeah. it's not, you know, there's so many things we'd change if we could, but, but, you know, when we look back and say, oh, I regret this, it's not going to be like a vaccine or, or something that I think that, that, that we'll be regretting as parents and. Um, so yeah, I, I know you said this the other day, I think on Twitter, it was like, we're not going to be looking back and missing, uh, North Carolina politics in <laughs> so many years or something. We're going to be missing like family time we spent with them. So, yeah, yeah. Tragedy has hit our family. We know what it's like to see that empty seat at the table. Um, but to lose a child. And when I read, you know, I followed the story. Uh, this year, and I read the Atlantic Monthly piece. It's very moving. I have this rule. <laughs> I don't try to engage the trolls or the meanness because I find that it only, they love it. But I was so angry when I saw some of the posts you being tagged on Twitter or social media. It had to just, for you, awful. I, I hid it from people for like weeks. Mm -hmm. It was all like around the funeral and stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm not showing my wife this or I'm not showing, mm -hmm. you know, family. I'm really glad I did because it was like not something you should just wrestle with on your own. But it was, um, you know, I think it was important for me also to talk about this. And the Atlantic was writing that story was 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 very meaningful because the reaction I got from people was incredible. I received emails that just like dwarf the, the, the cruelty. I, I don't know about number, but in terms of thought, these emails from people who were just pouring out their guts to me about mm -hmm. losses they'd had or, or wanting me to know that humans aren't terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, I said something in the article to the effect of it made me realize losing Jackson was like realizing that there's nothing fair and you can't count on fair. It started to make me think that there was nobody kind either. Right. And you know, is everyone just terrible? I'm like, I'm like, Crass. Yeah, I'm like is everyone right. just cruel? And that's not true. It's, it's a tiny percentage of people who are that cruel and awful. So it was really important for people to reach out and say, I felt compelled to write to you. And normally I wouldn't write to somebody because people's normal behavior isn't to reach out to a stranger mm -hmm. and just to say, I mean, there are incredible people who are like that who will reach out to a stranger without any thought and, and try to say something helpful. But, but it feels sometimes like on the internet, like the people who are putting in the effort 
to communicate are people who have really nasty things to say. Oh, yeah. And, and I think the main thing that I, that I think is teachable about that isn't that people have mean thoughts. It's that I think social media networks deliberately key on that yeah. to make their presence, to, to make their money. You know, they, they feed on angry stuff in the algorithm. And it's usually why, you know, I just feel like we've been manipulated for years and people are waking up to the fact that we've been manipulated by the Mark Zuckerberg or whether it's Elon Musk or whoever, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure there are ways we're being manipulated right now. I don't know about. So, yeah. um, but you know, just trying to like reconnect with people like, like people, you know, and I, I try to think about it this way when I'm writing stuff on Twitter, cause I've certainly said cutting things before. Um, and I think some moments call for it in politics and life. But it, I, I say, if, if I wouldn't say this to you on the street, then why would I say it here? Right. Um, yeah, there's a difference between disagreeing with someone and even doing it passionately. Uh, yeah, a whole other story if you're being cruel. I don't think it's very persuasive either. <laughs> I mean, just tactically, I think it's, not to mention it's just crass and, and inhumane, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you're making friends. Well, in that particular case, when someone's at the lowest point of their life, it says a lot about you as a person if yeah. you think that is the time to go at them. Right, agree. So for the, your last question, you're a listener of the podcast, so you know this is coming. If you had a magic wand and you could change something in our politics today, what would it be? I would remove Facebook, <laughs> X. I'd remove all the social media right out of the equation. Wow. It's a, you said magic because it's not going anywhere. There's way <laughs> too much money. In well, it, Elon but, Musk could, you know, Twitter might go away any day now. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I guess, I guess you could ruin. There is a way to get rid of a social media platform. Maybe he takes doing, over Facebook and he'll, he'll take that away too. Maybe this is all Elon Musk running like a civics experiment to see if he can get rid of misinformation by being so terrible. But the, you know, yeah, my magic wand would be getting back to conversation about issues in a fact-driven way and acknowledging your different positions and where you come from. But, but don't, you know, there's not, you know, creating this whole other world of this fake world of, of information that really thrives out there that I, that it's just, uh, you know, pizza gate and all these stories that are like, that's ridiculous. That's not true. And I think Elon Musk said that was true the other day too. <laughs> so you know, I think that this is like, yeah, that's my magic wand. No Facebook, no, no X, no Instagram's fine. It's mainly positive. Yeah. <laughs> LinkedIn's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. LinkedIn's fine. I, it's, it, it has a reputation for being boring, right? That's probably means it's better. Yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> like the public television of social media i love that question by the way i'm sure y'all get amazing answers yes well billy ball we appreciate everything you're doing in north carolina politics your coverage of north carolina politics at cardinal and pine you certainly know how to do journalism better 
Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. It's no secret. I love talking to journalists, just like I love talking to legislators. I think so. You love talking. (laughs) True. I find journalism just fascinating work. And there was a time when I was in college, I thought maybe I'll go into journalism, but went down the political path. Our intention was to have this interview drop after the new year. But you know, I followed, you followed, most of NC Poll followed just the tragic news of Billy's son's death back in January of 2023. And as we were talking before the interview, we're just talking about, you know, Christmas can be a hard time for a lot of families. Having him reflect on the holidays and Jackson's death was good for our audience. In addition to hearing about all the uh, unique ways Cardinal and Pine is getting news and information out to readers. Uh, Thank you, Billy, for being on the podcast and sharing your story. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from you. Brian Lewis, he's at New Frame Inc. on Twitter, which is very confusing for people, but you know, whatever. We have a major Christmas problem and it's too late in the holiday season to fix it. So when you get your holiday card from the Parkers, know it's really from New Frame. Sincerely, the Parkers. So we are the Parkers. Mm-hmm. Basically, I had ordered these Christmas cards. I was very excited for them to come in and they look great, other than the fact that they say, the Parker's 23, <laughs> which I feel like is just fitting for us. Like it's a little off, but pretty close to the real thing. Yeah. I had a grandmother whose maiden name was Parker, by the way. Mm. Just happens, right? It's too late. We can't reorder new ones. So you tried to white out a few. We made a little video to go with that tweet. And yeah. it's, it's, you and know. I stuck our sticker over it, but then I had to cut out the stickers. They're not exactly like. I'm not like a scissor girl, so I'm not, I don't make the best cuts. Uh So they're not perfect when you get them. So I'm sorry about that. We haven't (laughs) even, we have to go buy more stamps, by the way, uh, to even send out most of them. So they'll come soon. We're really sorry that they're not professional looking. (laughs) But appropriate this time of year, a time when you get these holiday cards from families or you see the Facebook post and you read what people are saying about how joyous they feel. It really is a time of year where things aren't perfect. And I sometimes feel by comparison, you know, especially happens with families like, oh, oh, they look so perfect. And you get these Christmas letters 
And you, yeah, know, you were telling me this. I've never heard of a Christmas letter. Oh, it's a suburban thing where basically you write a Christmas letter and you make it sound like a newspaper, like the Matthews family. It'll say the Matthews messenger 2023. And it'll be an update of like the mom just, you know, she does Pilates six times a day. And just so happens it comes with a photograph of her six pack abs. <laughs> the husband, he got that third promotion in five years and we got this boat and we're perfect. And our kids are double majoring at university of Virginia. And it's just, ugh, it's so bad. And I like that we lean into it and we find the humor because we know we're not perfect. No one's perfect, but it is a time of year where there's a lot of bragging out there. You know, I was going to take a, I talked about my mom at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Like I thought, okay, let's do a family photo. Let's show everyone around the Thanksgiving table enjoying this feast Mom couldn't find her teeth that morning. Couple folks vaping around the Thanksgiving table. People's eyes are closed. And I was just like, I probably should put that on a Christmas card and say, Merry Christmas from the Lewises. But anyway, we are sending out these cards from the Parkers. Yeah, this is my first time sending out a Christmas card. Did not grow up in a Christmas card family. Really too tight. Yeah, you know, Philip would, it's a waste of money. I'm doing that. Yeah. If you you see people, they know what you look like. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't do one personally? You don't send out? No. No. And I kind of agree with them. It it was expensive. Remember when I did it? I was like, these are really expensive. They are expensive. But I do like getting Christmas cards. I've never gotten this letter that you speak of. But I would say that that kind of, I would file those letters in the keep it to yourself column. Like, I don't really want to hear about everything you've done this year. I really just want to hear about your problems. Yeah. Well, that's why you live in the suburbs. You hear about everybody's problems. (laughs) I think it's a time to talk about grievances and all the things that went bad in 23 and how you're going to turn it around 24. You know, if I got a Christmas card from you, I would think, oh, she's perfect. I would never do that. Yeah. It just is not my style. Good for you. Hey, I had a great time with you traveling up to D.C., we are recording this podcast on Thursday, December 14th. We were in Washington yesterday. We're not going to tell you exactly why. You'll know next week. But traveling up there for the day, we, we it, it was a little bit of a, a, it was a long day. Yeah. Well, first we went back and forth about whether or not we were going to drive or fly. We could not get anybody to drive us. Right. Anyway, so we flew. (laughs) So our appointment was at 2 Mm o'clock. So there was a flight that was at 10. Everybody knows it takes like 30 minutes to get to D.C. in the air. Perfect. You're like, no, we have terrible luck traveling together. And to be fair, we've never had a delay on the way to someplace. You are right. So anyway, you said, let's take the 6 a.m. flight, which is fine by me, you know. I got up at three and worked out and I get to the airport. I have TSA pre-check because I'm not a peasant. And <laughs> I'm a man of the people. I don't have TSA pre-check. I, I get through security and I text you, please tell me you're here. I'm staring at the security line for the regulars and it's long. It was Oh, it was snaking. But you did text me here, and I knew at that point you weren't yet in the line, because then the next text that came from you a few minutes later was, this line is so long. So long. So I knew you weren't in the line when you said here. I was walking under the bridge, 
into the airport as I texted you. So I asked you if you needed anything. I got some steps in at the airport. They're boarding the flight. Brian's nowhere to be seen. I text you. I'm getting on the flight. I'll see you on the flight. <laughs> I'm, I'm Googling Uber rides to Washington, D.C. They're very expensive, but they're there. We're on the flight and like nobody is getting on the flight. Everybody's on. Finally, here you come. Last person on the flight. My anxiety is at a 10 out of 10 in this situation. Like if he misses the flight, I mean, I would put you on the 10 o'clock flight and it would be fine. But I, I would just be, I would just sit at the DC airport and wait for you. Mm-hmm. You were Due not to your lack of planning. Well, and that is the story of my life. <laughs> I'm a very flawed person. I, I am not perfect like the people who send me Christmas letters. But we had a good time. I got on the plane. We were, I was happy. You were not happy. I think you were a little mad at me. So here he comes strutting on the plane. This is what you should know about Brian. He's got to do a skit. You know, he gets on the plane. <laughs> He's the last person on. Everybody already saw you. You got the attention you wanted, right? No, no, no. <laughs> there needed to be more. Uh-huh. So it's like, you know, 5.45 a.m. And he does his like, Sky, Sky David. David. <laughs> I haven't seen you since. Has it been high school? And you're just like, stop talking to me. I'm like, I don't want to do this with you right now. I have my AirPods in. Can't hear you. And so you kept doing it. And then like, I told you. Your bag was on the seat in between us. I'm like, you're supposed to put your bag underneath the seat in front of you. I don't know if you know this. I like to follow rules. Here comes the flight attendant. Sir, can you put your bag down? And you're like, yeah, I told her to do that, but I'll do it. Was it my bag or your bag? It was your bag. Oh, that's right. It was my bag. Yeah, then you pretended it was mine. It was your bag. My ugly backpack you don't like. It was your bag. Yeah, you got to... Just embrace it, you know, have a little fun. Now, you do have a rule uh, about being on the flight. When the flight attendant goes through the instructions, you are totally paying attention. You're focused on the hand movements. And I the, want them to know I'm, uh, I'm listening, you know, I care. Mm-hmm. That what they're doing. I should get an A in this class, whatever it is. Yeah. And I want them to know, I want them to see me as someone who's there to assist them. Why? I just think it would be important. I don't know if I would want you to be the one assisting in the event of a crash. (laughs) I am. I'm that guy. I will, if the oxygen masks come down, you know, they tell you that you should take air first. I would give it to you first before I took air. Well, that would be incorrect. That would not be the direction they gave you so that's why i wouldn't want you doing this sort of thing you can't even follow basic directions that's how selfless i am i'm just that guy yeah we arrived in dc at 6 45 in the morning yep did you enjoy hotel lobby surfing i don't know i then i felt like we were breaking rules (laughs) i didn't particularly enjoy it no so what you have to do if you're in a city and you need to work if you're wearing a nice suit or just in my case, an off-the-rack with elastic band suit. You were wearing a nice suit, so we went into a hotel lobby and act like we should be there. And they give you the Wi-Fi password, and you can work all afternoon. And we did that. Mm-hmm. Or I should say all morning. Yeah. Yeah. So we made it to the hill, had our appointment, returned last night. We were exhausted. Yeah. Getting back on the plane, we weren't 
seated together. And I was a couple <laughs> boarding classes before Brian, or boarding groups, not classes. I was group seven, you were group five. Right. So here he comes. There's a woman I don't know sitting beside me. He does a, <laughs> we're on a new skit, everyone, you know? <laughs> new day, new people. Actually, it wasn't a new day, same day. New people, new skit, which oh, you yeah. thought was hilarious. Yeah, I know. I was rooting for you during the trial, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad to see you're out of prison, and it's great to see you. Here we are on a flight together. She didn't seem amused at all. Then I asked you if you would ask her to move so I could sit next to you. And I said no. Yeah, you didn't do but that. But you slept the entire flight anyway, so... Sitting up straight, I fell asleep for about 20 minutes. You said the entire flight. Well, how long was that? I was I kept coming minutes. in and out at the end. I said 40 minutes. Because every time they'd talk, you know, in the PA, it'd wake me up. Yeah, how weird. I know. So selfless, though. <laughs> but we had a ball. It was a fun time. Yeah. And it's we're always big fun travel traveling. partners. Yeah, we're great traveling. But I should say is that we both love an airport, you know? Mm-hmm. It's amusing. Casual viewing. You know what we love the most? And this is the same thing we love about airports that we love about hanging out at the General Assembly. And yesterday, hanging out in the United States Congress, we love... People watching. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I don't understand why you don't go to the State Fair more. <laughs> the people watching is so fun. I agree. Yeah. Well, great to be back. As Brian said... Next week, we have a special episode, but please enjoy this episode, listen to it, share it with a friend, and remember to do politics better.